Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon The Amazing Spider-Talk The Amazing Spider-Talk Come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the Amazing Spider-Talk Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. But stay tuned, because tomorrow you'll find out who my co-host is. As Dan teased yesterday, I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I'm the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog, author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but the annuals don't count. Stay tuned tomorrow to find out our thesis statement. Well, yesterday you met Mark, but today I want to say thanks for joining us for our 10th episode of the third season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as they look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. If you want to learn everything we know about Spidey, why not subscribe to our show starting back with the first season? And if you stay tuned tomorrow, you can find out how. Now that we've set the stage, today we want to tell you how you can enjoy our show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice. We'd love to have you along for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. Just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe and join us tomorrow for another exciting installment of the show. Yesterday, you learned how to tune into our exciting program, but today, the drama unfolds anew. You see, in this third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, we've been following our favorite web-slinger through the transition into the Bronze Age, a time period that is known for its darker tone and sometimes outlandish stories. But in this very episode, we'll be moving away from the pages of the comics and into the pages of your newspaper. That's right, Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. are back. The Silver Age never ended, and Spider-Man got his own new newspaper strip in 1977 and we are going to be talking all about it on tomorrow's show well if yesterday's tease of this episode wasn't exciting enough for you then maybe today's financial thrill ride will sate you yes if you enjoy this podcast and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly go to our show notes and check out our patreon page and consider joining our team to that point we want to issue a special thanks to Jeremy Bong for making a donation to our PayPal after our site got hacked this weekend. So thank you, Jeremy. That actually really helped out a lot. But enough fooling around, Mark. Tomorrow, we'll get to our discussion about the origins of the Spider-Man newspaper strip. Stan loved it. Um, I was uh, I was away from home when he actually called me on the telephone, 
And well, I still have the the little CD cassette tape from the answering machine, which probably is decayed by now. <laughs> but at any rate, I remember coming home from wherever I was with my wife, and we saw that we had a, a voicemail, and it was Stan Lee. He personally called me up, and he goes, "Hey, Alex, I'm so glad that you're interested in drawing the Spider-Man strip. It's really great. I love your artwork. It doesn't pay that much, but think of the glory." <laughs> so literally. Um, he basically wanted to know when I could get started, etc., etc., and um, so that's pretty much all she wrote. That's right, everyone. If you have not been able to follow along after that long-winded intro, Dan and I are actually here to talk about another version of comic book Spider-Man. That's the newspaper syndicated version of Spider-Man, which first debuted in 1977. But before that even happened, Dan, this was actually for a little bit of background here. Actually, a bit of an experiment that Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. had been working on in the early 70s, actually 1970, when they were still working together on Amazing Spider-Man. They developed about two weeks worth of strips called The Phantom Burglar, but basically no newspaper syndicates were interested in what they referred to as continuity strips, a.k.a. like serial comics at the time. So instead, they published the storyline in Marvel Mania magazine number three and four in 1970. Do you own copies of the Marvel Mania magazines? I I do not. But have you read them? Have you seen? I don't even I've never even read them. I've read like a few of the I think I've read like the first five or six panels or not panels, the strips for the series that introduces this villain called the Phantom Burglar. And I've always kind of been curious about who the character was ultimately going to be revealed to be because it looks a lot like the Prowler. It's just kind of like almost like Spawn like character. It's this like big Spider-Man eyes, but slightly more evil looking and a big cape. But it's all in shadow, so you never really get the reveal. And so my thought has always been that it was the Prowler they were working on, but it's not written like the Prowler. Like, it's written like like a pure villainous character, which the Prowler never really was. So that's always been a curiosity for me, and I, I guess I should have asked them when I had the opportunity to. I don't think that was the most pressing thing on my mind. It's a fun little strip there, and it ends on a cliffhanger that was never really resolved. You know, actually, the Prowler, I remember reading the story, J.R.J.R. likes to joke that he came up with the Prowler because he told his dad at some point, you should do a villain named the Prowler. <laughs> like, he didn't actually come up with the concept, just the name. So anyway, but that's an interesting, interesting take on it. I mean, I do find it funny that like back in the late 60s, early 70s, basically the newspaper syndicates didn't have a taste for these kind of comics for the newspapers because, you know, after the comic strip ended up debuting, you know, in in the Stanley mythology, which I mean, God, God, God loves Stan, but the, the guy sure knew how to like take a story and just expand on it and and create a bigger legend out of it. He made it sound like before the strip debuted in 1977, they were newspaper syndicates like knocking down his door to do Spider-Man and that he was the one that never really wanted to do it, but because he couldn't think of how to do it. Like he was like, how, how do I make a serial comic strip into an actual daily newspaper strip? He also understood that the newspaper audience was significantly larger than the mainstream public buying a comic book. I mean, like you would have like, you know, a good comic book would sell at that time a couple hundred thousand copies, whereas, I mean, newspaper, this, this these strips that were being syndicated, I mean, we're talking tens of millions of households across the country every day, right? 
Yeah. Did you grow up reading the Spider-Man newspaper strip? I mean, uh, it was infrequently published in the papers around my hometown. Like, I think maybe one paper that we didn't get carried it. I remember seeing it in the Sunday comics, but I never got the daily strip. I, I the the My hometown paper growing up, the daily strips are kind of small. Like, it had, like, The Far Side and Calvin and Hobbes and Kathy and stuff like that. But then, like, the Sunday insert was this huge insert, and it had things like, you know, Spider-Man. I think there might have even been, like, a Batman or a Superman strip or something like that. I mean, like, it was a ton of stuff in this, like, Sunday thing. So I would read the Sunday. So I don't remember these stories at all. I Like, I have so little memory of it. But they were definitely in the Sunday pages. I remember getting it a little bit when I was a kid and always being kind of bored with it. And... You know, I just read the whole first book uh, that collects all of them, and my initial reaction was that it was really hard to read it in the format of a book before it kind of changed its own format, which we'll talk about later. You know, I, I quite enjoyed it, and I, I wonder if maybe I just kind of came to it at the wrong time. But I, I, yeah, I guess I was just curious what your personal relationship with this comic was. Honestly, not a terrible lot. I mean, I I, I kind of dove more into this mythology when I was researching the the book I wrote a couple of years ago. I mean, like I bought the same volumes that you're referring to in terms of the the IDW collections of them and stuff, and you know, I read through them, and for the most part, like they were a curiosity, but like it's a tough medium to get this going. And I mean, and and then when you're kind of sitting there and binging through it, I think it's even harder to read. You know what I mean? Like it's like the opposite of writing for the trade. Uh, (laughs) Cause you're kind of just like, wow, I'm like, I've gone through three pages and have not advanced this story yet, but it's worth, before we get into the format of it, it's worth talking about like what, what basically changed for Stan to go forward on this was he, he made the decision that, you know, in order for superhero comics to work, to work in a daily newspaper, strip it would actually probably be better for him to focus on peter parker and like his personal and romantic life and and you know and if you notice like when you look through these especially early on i mean yes there are some illustrations of spider-man in costume doing spider-man stuff but not really i mean it's more about peter and mj or peter's love life or hanging out at the bugle i mean it actually kind of feels a lot like the uh 67 cartoon in that regard yeah, but there are still a lot of like big action set pieces. And I think, uh, you know, it's funny because it, it does feel in some ways like, you know, the, the comic shrunk down to smaller paneling and, and without a v- variety of panels to go on you know, after a while. Like the book kind of just settles into like almost like alternate history versions of classic Spider-Man tales as if the, you know, the Silver Age never ended. You know, it's it's as if. There's no Gwen in this book, and and initially MJ kind of disappears for a while, and so you're kind of just getting Peter and his like kind of sad luck stuff and these big Spider-Man action sequences that you can't really render in full size. So they kind of had to get clever about it. For me, it it largely worked, but the stuff that does work the best is the relationship stuff, as you're as you're saying. As you were alluding to, I mean, this is not only did this kind of feel like frozen in time. I mean, it did technically take place in a separate timeline i in our notes asked the question to you dan did this did they touch on this in spider-verse and you can answer that question as you did here in the notes <laughs> yeah i think dan slot did like two pages of it there's like a sequence where Morlin comes to kill this version of spider-man but he gets really frustrated by how long it takes to do anything and and how much it repeats itself 
because you get like Peter saying the same thing to him, like four days in a row and he can't even begin to attack them. It's like a really bad Dragon Ball Z episode. <laughs> it's just, he can't actually hurt him because of the format of the book. And he just decides to like leave cause he's so frustrated. And then Karn is like tucks it away into its own pocket reality so that it doesn't get disturbed. So I think that was kind of like the first like real kind of allusion to it. And uh, it's been safe ever since. So if you're keeping count, this Peter is still alive. And then of course, you know, Stanley couldn't do this by himself, like he never could. So for art, he turned to his trusted sidekick, John Ramita. Of course, you know, makes me wonder, what what would Steve Ditko look like doing a daily comic strip? <laughs> I can't even imagine. <laughs> but even like Ramita, I mean, for as good as he worked with Stan, I mean, he reportedly, or not even reportedly, he in interviews talks about how he, he thought the whole thing was bonkers. Like he's just like, who's going to read this garbage? And like, we're just repeating ourselves. And why don't we want to like see like big Spider-Man action stuff or see him interacting with other heroes? And like that would stuff like that would change over time. Like we would see like Doctor Strange and Daredevil and Wolverine show up in this. But when you think about it, there's no better artist to, to bring in if you're actually going to focus a lot on more of the romantic side of Peter, right? Or, or the personal life side, I guess you could say. And it's funny because you know, I, I love Ramita's stuff. And that was like the real hook of this to me is like seeing more Ramita is like just finding like a treasure trove, like on your bookshelf, you know, like, oh my gosh, Ramita was here all along. But even he, like when you read this, you can feel like he's really kind of constrained by the format. He doesn't get to do his big splashy things that he's known for. And, you know, he's cramming as much as he can in, but it, it is remarkable how well framed every image is and how crisp and clear Ramita's storytelling is, you know, it's like you refrained Ramita into the nine panel grid from Ditko like, but he still works and it's pretty remarkable. So why don't we talk a little bit about just some elements of how these stories were told and the kind of stories we got in this thing. Cause I think both of those are pretty interesting and unique to what these comics were. So, so first, let's talk about the structure a little bit. So let's keep in mind here. What are we dealing with? On a, day, on a day-to-day basis, we were getting three horizontal panels, three small panels to tell a story, basically, every day. Sometimes four. And then Sunday, you would get about six. And, and Sundays would always be full color, my understanding. I don't think the, the, dailies, were, were, the dailies were in black and white, I would think. Unless the news, you know, unless the newspaper was publishing in color for some reason, I guess. No, they were only produced in black and white. You know, you look at a comic book, and in addition to, I mean, yes, there are horizontal panels in a comic book, but a, but a comic book, its format is vertical, and and like the vertical lets you do things like big splash pages and and tall panoramic shots, and you know, Romita over the years has done many beautiful visuals of that nature thinking immediately of spider-man tucking a costume into a garbage can in amazing spider-man number 50 one of the most famous panels in comic book history right so obviously this format from an artistic standpoint was was restrictive to someone like ramita i mean like you said ramita just does a an amazing job given those restrictions because the work is so crisp and clean and his characters are you know like they're they're pretty, you know. Like that's that's like that. What was the word that I come to when I think of Ramita? It's pretty. It's very pretty to look at. Everyone kind of looks like a fashion model, except for Aunt May, but that's okay. And Jonah, but for the most part, like 
he is restricted in what he can do. Do you feel like he's limited here? I mean, or do you think there's enough good stuff to overcome where he's physically limited? It's definitely limited. I mean, you just mentioned all the pretty faces, and that's kind of what the book really focuses on is Ramita's faces and how many different ways he can draw beautiful women in, in you know, different haircuts. But after a while, you kind of notice that like people look pretty similar. And that's just kind of the style of the book for, for what it is. You know, he doesn't get to kind of shake himself loose a little bit. I mean, this is not in the era of say like Calvin Hobbes where Bill Watterson was really kind of pushing the format and what publishers were willing to print in a newspaper. Like Spider-Man was meant to be a pitch down home, you know, right down the line, you know, and, and really safe in that regard. And, you know, that the formatting is really safe, but I, I do think, you know, he found ways to shake it up. I mean, obviously he used, he couldn't change the size of the panels so he could instead change the size of the imagery, right? So you got a lot more close-ups and, you know, different techniques like from almost like manga stuff where you would get hyper-detailed images to emphasize things instead of making them large and... In that regard, I think he, I mean, I think he made it work as much as anybody could possibly have made it work. And then, of course, there is the actual, like, how the narrative was structured, which is to say, how is the narrative structured, Dan? The narrative was structured, right, Dan? Stay tuned tomorrow while we talk about how the narrative is structured, Dan, right? <laughs> it's very glacial in, in its plotting. I think especially for the for- first few months of the strip, like, you can really feel them being uncomfortable with the format. And I think that they were overly worried about people jumping on the book and knowing what is going on. And you can see them repeating stuff over and over and over again. I mean, there's like weeks where like maybe someone leaves a room and you see them leave the door three or four times. And then in the Sunday strip, you see them recap all of the door leaving. Like it's just endless, like recycling of the, the very little plot that we got. I mean, the Sunday strip for the most part is just one giant recap page, right? I went back and reread some of these again, and I'm like thinking to myself, like, I mean, these Sunday strips, if you're reading these whole things in a binge setting, these Sunday strips, outside of the fact of being in color, they're they're basically superfluous to the storytelling. I mean, even more superfluous than the strips themselves were. But that changes, I think, about like a year in, maybe a little less than a year in, and it becomes really kind of like a comic you can just read straight through. I mean, it, it definitely hems and haws, but I don't think it hems and haws all that much more than Stan might normally overstate things, which is kind of like... Stanley's MO is to kind of really put a pin on everything that happens. Still, like, I mean, this feels like, in you know, in terms of decompressed storytelling, I mean, like, this would make Bendis be like, wow, guys, can you go a little faster? I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it also had the whole thing, you know, where, like, you know, in comics, you want every page turn to be like a mini cliffhanger, right? Something that's going to keep you reading well they want you hooked to come back a day from now so like every three panels is like some little crisis and it works you know decently well for spider-man more than these other kind of ongoing storytelling comics because spider-man gets into big action stuff and i think actually as time goes on they tended to kind of lean into the action a little bit more than they started out because of that very nature like action allowed him to be kind of like coming up against new threats every, you know, 
daily strip. And I think the book became more action heavy. And I, I know that some of the later writers and artists complained that the book seemed to be headed in a more violent direction that, that, than they wanted. And I think that might be why. Let's talk about the stories themselves, because these are these are pretty fascinating to me. I don't know. Like this feels for the most part like there are elements here that are familiar in terms of like what you would expect reading an issue of Amazing or Spectacular Spider-Man. But there's a lot of changes here that kind of make this very unique. Something that I appreciated, actually, that I kind of saw as a positive was like because this was, you know, printed in a newspaper, I feel like there was more of a focus to try and like tie in both current events and political issues, not like political statements, but just kind of like tying in their storylines and how they might relate to what you would see in the news. And also like, I mean, you know, Stan always liked to kind of work in the zeitgeist a bit if he could. I mean, but this is like an overdrive in this strip, right? Because like, I mean, he's totally playing to like, you know, the layman who doesn't know diddly squat about comics. So like anytime you can like work in a a, a reference to somebody like, I mean, there's like in the, in the very first, stri- so like the very first storyline that this debuted on, I think kind of brings all these to a light. Like you have this storyline where Dr. Doom is brought in, is lobbied into the U.S. by J. Jonah Jameson to give a speech to the U.N. about law and order, which, you know, for those who don't know about history repeating itself over and over again in the current world, that was former President Richard Nixon's, like, big platform in the 70s was this, like, law and order and, you know, kind of the fallout from the Vietnam War and all the protests and and violent outbursts and things like that. He was restoring law and order in this country. And it's a whole thing that Stan Lee, like, already got into in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man, right? Like, with Bullock and all that stuff. I mean, he really got into the law and order stuff. It feels like in the pages of Amazing, they were like these one-off kind of subplots. Like, you know, we would get one issue every 10 or 12 where that might touch on it. You know what I mean? Whereas this this storyline was, I mean, like all all the way through. I mean, it's like, you know, basically Peter reacting to Jonah being like, why the, why in the world is he bringing this Latvian dictator into the United States to give a speech to the UN? Like, this is, this is someone who kills people. You know what I mean? Like, this, <laughs> like we're, 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 kata- we're kowtowing to dictators. Who does that? I also like how, like, in the, like, I think it was within, like, the very first week of the storyline, there's this, like, throwaway line where, I think Spider-Man like swings through and he's like, who are you expecting, Muhammad Ali? Because it's like, again, like Stan Lee has just got to like work in every pop culture reference he possibly can, right? Right. And if that doesn't sound like a standard Spider-Man story, like some of the villains and, and their origins with Spider-Man are also very different in, in the pages of this. So like, for example, like Craven is introduced as being kind of a reality star. Like he's this kind of big showman and he gets hired by Jameson as most of Spider-Man's villains do to kind of fight against him and, and hunt him down. And, you know, some of the villains have completely new identities like Mysterio. There's this whole bit where Spider-Man wants to star in a movie that they're making about Spider-Man. So he goes to Hollywood and, you know, Mysterio is the special effects guy that's trying to win the role of Spider-Man in the movie but he gets outdone by the real Spider-Man, and so he's going to fight him. But this is where the real shocker came to me, is that Mysterio isn't Quentin Beck. He's actually a guy named Hadley Harper. And I kept waiting for like Quentin Beck to show up, and it's like, no, actually, 
Quentin Beck is Mysterio in this universe. It's a guy named Hadley Harper. Which is just so disappointing. But the fishbowl is there. <laughs> and so is the bowl cut. You know, it's, it, you know, we got the double bowls going on. It's a different dude. Yeah, and and there were other classic villains. I mean, and you know, I I kind of found this amusing. There's a, a early storyline with Kingpin Wilson Fisk being there, and he's he's trying to basically like extort Spider-Man to help him become mayor of New York, <laughs> which is like there you go. <laughs> I mean, it just feels appropriate. But then there were also like some non six one six villains that were introduced here. There was this character who's Quite sim- you know, seems similar to Kurt Connors, the lizard, but he's actually the Rattler. And uh, I liked that the Rattler was first introduced, that he was on the streets of New York in costume, giving out ads to Reptile World, which is just, you know, what villains do, right? <laughs> yeah, I actually really like that storyline. There's a few other characters that kind of like pop in and out of this. Like there's almost like a new social circle for Spider-Man. The biggest one being Carol Jennings, who's this kind of girl at ESU that he kind of becomes friends with and eventually kind of like toys with being romantic with in, in the pages of the book. You know, Mary Jane kind of disappears pretty quickly. She, you know, gets a job out in Hollywood and Flash Thompson accompanies her out there for this modeling gig. And, you know, the whole time she's thinking of Peter, but Flash is wooing her. It allows Peter to kind of get a few new love interests. Like there's this character, uh, Tana, who is like daughter of this terrorist, which is, is kind of like the whole like brother, son, sister, moon thing with like Shashan. Like there's some of that going on. There's this character named the Protector, that's introduced that's never really brought over to Amazing Spider-Man. It's curious to me, though, because like there's a pretty robust social life for Peter that we never saw in Amazing Spider-Man. And I'm surprised that like even someone like Dan Slott has never found a way to kind of introduce those characters you know, more properly into Amazing Spider-Man. There was like a newsiness to it. Like, I mean, we're, we're at that time, I mean, we're, we're in a post-Vietnam world, obviously, but like the idea, like, you know, international terrorism feels like it's on the rise again. It's a, it's an unstable world. And, and, you know, here we have Peter kind of caught in this almost, you know, like you said, like the Shashan story, like this tragic romance that that you know is not meant to be you know these star-crossed lovers i guess you could say it just kind of felt current i mean maybe even feels current now i don't know you know in addition to making these little jokes about the zeitgeist you gotta love like if you go through the pages of these comics you are going to find so many visual easter eggs you're going to see the Fonz, henry winkler mary tyler moore john travolta i think woody allen shows up i mean like who's not Hanging out with Spider-Man in these comics, Dan. Yeah, there's a whole scene where, like, they go to this disco that Flash and Harry have opened. And, like, every person in the background of the disco is, like, a famous person that Ramita is seemingly having fun drawing into the comic. And it's a, I showed it to my wife last night, and we're like, oh, it's a who's who. Like, Barbara Streisand is mixed in there. You know, like, there's all kinds of people in the background. And it's fun to kind of see them. This comic is fun. And we, we talked a lot about the kind of romance angle of it. Like it's weird because, you know, this came out, you know, six years after Stan had stopped writing the comic and, you know, we've got the Gwen Stacy stuff happening. And if you look at the pitch for the comic from like the early seventies, Gwen is featured there. And so is Harry. And it's kind of the whole college, you know, Spider-Man brat pack. 
but they're not very like well featured initially here. Like Gwen is never mentioned in the comic. She just doesn't exist outright. And that I found very curious because there is a real focus on Peter's romance. And I felt like they ship MJ off pretty quickly so that Peter can establish these other romances. And in regards to Peter's whole like style is he meets this like Tana character, the, the daughter of this terrorist. But within like two weeks, he's already like going like engagement ring shopping, you know, like Peter was really like every girl he met was like the one. And, you know, I don't know if it speaks to the time of it, but I actually think that it's really kind of curious because you, you you can see John Romita kind of updating his art style to reflect the time. Like Peter's hair goes from like his 1960s hair to like this kind of shaggy, more 70s hair as the disco kind of finds its way into the book. But the kind of like morals and culture of the book remained very kind of like outdated, I think. And I don't know if that's Romita or it's Stan, but there's a very kind of like pure, like puritanical kind of approach to Peter and his like uh, views of the world. He's kind of a misogynist and, you know, and he's very quick to anger and take it out on other people. And it's weird because I don't feel like that guy was really like part of Jerry's comics. And so in a way this feels almost like a time capsule. Like I said earlier, it's like the bronze age never happened. Peter never really grew up. The the phrase I used earlier was frozen in time. And I think that there's, there's some truth to that. Like you said, there are some visual updates, but other than that, it just kind of feels weird and outdated and and kind of like stuck in its own world, which it was. And yet there is a legacy to this comic that I think makes it kind of important in its own way. Do you want to, do you want to talk about that? Well, before we move on to that, I want to talk about two more things. There's one story I want to really highlight that I think is really interesting. There's this character named Vera who discovers Spider-Man's identity by finding his costume webbed to the side of the wall, and she uses it to blackmail Peter. And I thought it was really an interesting story, this kind of like play between the two characters. I've never seen it on a Spider-Man comic before. Like normally when people find out Spider-Man's identity, they really kind of are a villain or something. And she's definitely a villain, but she's just a normal person that is using his identity like against him actively and getting him to do bad things. A really interesting story that I, I recommend fans of the character go check out. But the even bigger thing that I want to mention is, you know, we always talk about like, you know, Dicko doing the origin of Spidey and thinking like, you know, what if Dicko continued drawing into, you know, the, the era of Ramita? Like, what would that story have looked like as Peter aged up? But the converse is also true. Like, what would the origin of Spider-Man look like drawn by Ramita? And, you know, he drew little things here and there, but we get recaps and stuff. But here we get the full-fledged origin of Spider-Man done by Ramita. And it's also Stan's kind of first time really revisiting in this in full. It's a really decompressed version of it, but you really do get to see the visuals of what Ramita would do. And if anybody's a fan of, I mean, obviously if you're a fan of Spider-Man, you're listening to this, but if you're a big fan of Ramita's, like this is really quite exciting to me because it is like seeing an alternate universe version of like how the origin of the character could play out with another penciler. These are worth checking out by all means. 
Um, do we want to talk about the legacy now or am I, I don't want to jump on you here. <laughs> Mark, take it away. Tell us about like the, what would come in the future of this strip. We've been talking about how this is kind of taking place in its own separate universe. I mean, you know, some commonalities aside, there have been points where these stories have either crossed over or been synchronized. I think the biggest instance of that was in the mid eighties when Peter and Mary Jane got married. And I mean, you know, obviously in this strip, you know, not so much in the early, early years, but as time went on, Peter and MJ were consistently dating. Like, I mean, like there was no, you know, whereas in the mainstream comics, Peter was with Black Cat or Deb Whitman. Well, kind of Deb Whitman. Or MJ was out of the book completely for a while. I mean, you know what I mean? Like like in the Roger Stern, well, Roger Stern brought her back, but predating Roger Stern, Marv Wolfman pretty much wrote her out for the, for the bulk of his uh, tenure. You know, Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief of Marvel in the 80s, when he decided to move forward and, and, and marry off Peter and MJ, Stan Lee decided to, you know, well, let's have them get married in the newspaper strip, too. So they were basically, like, synchronized. It wasn't crossed over, but they, they you know, they, they, they decided to do the same in both universes to kind of have that be aligned. But it did cross over at one point. What was the book where they actually did actually meet for the first time? If I'm getting details wrong, correct me, universe, but there's a a three-part miniseries in 1993 by uh, Stephen Grant and Scott Collins called Spider-Man The Mutant Agenda, which as it describes and features the X-Men, that apparently crossed over. Like they were, they were parts of the story that took place in this miniseries and parts of the story that took place in the strip during this this three-month period. I think there was even like a competition to like for fans to get themselves drawn into the strip too. So like it was a kind of a big multimedia push in a way. There was another instance too where they kind of synced up with each other and it's the kind of one of the stranger ones. It's during Brand New Day, right? And the whole splitting up of the marriage. And so I think, you know, Casada, I don't know what kind of control he had over the newspaper strip, but they kind of made it the same thing happen in the strip where there was, you know, some kind of changing and Peter was all of a sudden younger again and he wasn't with Mary Jane. And there was so much perceived confusion around this that they even put into the strip a written thing that said, you know, here's what's going on, you know, like here's why we're doing this. And, and I've read, you know, Roy Thomas was writing the strip for a while and he reportedly said that it was his idea of undoing the marriage and he convinced Stan to do it. But very shortly after they did this whole thing, Stan decided that it was a a terrible idea and told Roy he had to undo it. And so Roy went back into it and there's like a moment where Peter went to sleep in Aunt May's apartment as a young man, single and all that stuff. And then he woke up and he was next to Mary Jane again and in a sort of like Dallas moment where everything was all just a dream. He was never split up from Mary Jane. So, yeah, it's just interesting because they had to, you know, like I said, they had to issue a clarification to fans who were like kind of unsure of what to make of this almost like 20 year rewind. So yeah, if you think, you know, you know, they had a bad in the comics, they were also doing the same thing in the newspaper strip. And MJ herself, I mean, she, she had quite the, quite the career in these comics that, and some of that would kind of carry over into the mainstream. I feel right. Yeah. She started off weirdly enough. She was working in a computer store 
during some of the run and, and they, you know, they took her eventually. She gets to develop in a way that I think maybe we're seeing come back again in amazing Spider-Man today where, you know, MJ was working as a movie star and a, and a Broadway actress in the newspaper strip. And she even played a superhero called Marvella, you know, before this whole captain Marvel is a woman thing. She was Marvella. And then of course, like there's the, the kind of the parade of creators who have gone on to work on Spidey in the mainstream books that, that either got their start at the comic strip or kind of have jumped back and forth. That includes Dan Barry, Fred Keita, Paul Ryan, then Alex Saviuk. And we actually had Alex on the show many, many moons ago. And I asked him about the strip. And I think my favorite story of his was the voicemail that he said he got from Stan Lee, which, of course, like if you get a voicemail from Stan Lee, you're saving that voicemail, right? Well, especially now. (laughs) (laughs) Something else is going horribly wrong if you get one now. Too soon. I'm sorry. I I like that. He said, describe the voicemail saying, it doesn't pay much, but think of the glory, which sounds exactly like something Stan Lee would say as a pitch to somebody. And then something I actually thought was interesting, and I mean, I, I got this from a book that was written a few years ago, so maybe is it possible this has changed? But Stanley's brother, Larry Lieber, who, of course, I mean, he worked most famously on Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 5, the, the, the origin of Peter's parents. So, I mean, he has been around. But he had been penciling this strip for about 18 years and is considered the longest tenured artist to be associated with Spider-Man. Yeah, that sounds right. I can't think anybody has beaten 18 years. I mean, maybe Bagley? Yeah, that's probably right. Bagley's been around forever, since the early 90s. So, yeah. But he's had some interruptions, so maybe it's like continual. I, I don't know. But like that, you know... I would probably put stock in this that, that that this is still true, but I did find that interesting that that you know when you think back of like the longest tenured creators with Spider-Man, I mean obviously Stan and Dan Slott and you could say Bagley or Bendis, but Larry Lieber, man, eighteen years to be on one to be working on one character. That's pretty cool. Stan obviously working on the character the whole time. Now that's a little like rocky, you know, like he had a lot of ghost writers over the years and most curiously, the strip when it ended earlier this year, March twenty second, twenty nineteen in the strip, you could see the images of Roy Thomas and Alex Saviak drawn in by, by Saviak for the final strip. The book still credited Stan Lee for, with writing it, but he couldn't have because Stan Lee was dead. So unless he was taking ghost writing to a whole other level, like we're going to double down on this joke. Waka waka. <laughs> yeah. You know, after he died, the strip continued with his name on it. And it's not because he had gotten ahead of it. It's because Roy Thomas was ghostwriting it at the time, and he had been ghostwriting the title since July 17th in the year 2000, so, you know, almost two decades. And he admitted in, like, his a final letter that he wrote after the strip was canceled that, you know, Stan had called him up, and they were discussing other work, but Stan offered him – he needed help on the strip – and admittedly, for as little money as $300 a week, but luckily, Roy was living in South Carolina and owned a home that cost very little to keep up, so he could afford to do it at $300 a week, and so he took over, and Stan edited his stories throughout the years and provided feedback, but Roy was kind of, you know, running the ship. You know, Stan eventually, his health began to decline, and he got a pacemaker installed, and that's where he kind of stepped back completely. And when he passed away, 
Roy expected that, you know, the strip would continue and that he would get to finally put his name on it and take credit for the work that he'd been doing. And Alex Saviak, who had been working on it for a while, finally became full-time artist on it. So there was looking like there was going to be a big sea change in terms of the credit of the strip, but then it was kind of canceled unceremoniously and they had to kind of drop a final storyline they were going to do. So neither of them really ever got to see their names fully on the strip. And I think Roy was a little bitter about it. He admits so, but Alex Saviak had a bit, bit of better head for this thing. So that's why he drew in both of them into the final strip. It's kind of a neat thing. If you got to see it, it had a nice long run. I mean, 1977 to 2019, you know, newspaper strips are dying or dying breed these days. So I, I consider something like a, what is that? A 42 year run. Pretty good. Well, thanks again for joining us for our 10th episode of our third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan, what do we got coming up next on our show? Yeah, Mark, we've kind of been away from talking about Amazing Spider-Man regularly on our main feed, although we've been kind of working away there over on the Patreon. So the next episode is going to be a review roundup of issues 24 and the kind of mega-sized issue 25 with all of its backup stories and all of its high-priced goodness. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 31 and Absolute Carnage number 4. There's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of the Nick Spencer and, of course, the Donny Cates, Ryan Stegman, Absolute Carnage goodies. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, b-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commission artwork this season from Barry Kitson. Also, be sure to check out our sister show, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, as they dive into more obscure Spider-Man stories, even more obscure than this newspaper strip, I think. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider Slack community for you to join. Just check out this episode's description for a link to join up and talk Spider-Man with us all the live long day. Lastly, it wouldn't be an episode of Amazing Spider Talk without the help of our editor, Rick Coast. He's amazing, spectacular, adjectiveless webbub. There's not enough adjectives in the Spider-Man mythos to describe all the work that he's doing. No doubt, Dan. So thank you, Rick, as always. And check out those other shows in the Slack. Dan, before we go, of course, where can we find you elsewhere in the universe? Yeah, I'm online. I'm at at Sup Spider Talk on Twitter. I also recently was on the BBC. So if you uh, check out my Twitter feed, you can uh, listen to my interview that I did on the BBC, which was a lot of fun. I'm also uh, appearing in an upcoming film called Halloween in the Box, where I'm on there to talk about the early Spider-Man costumes and how they were kind of like a part of helping to save Halloween. It's a documentary that I recorded a few years back, and uh, it's finally coming out. So go check out Halloween in a Box on any kind of video streaming service. It's a great movie, and I'm really happy to have been a part of it. What about you, Mark? What have you been up to? 
Dan, you are so busy, my friend. That is awesome. And and your BBC interview was spectacular, if I may say so. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. I hope I did the show proud. You absolutely did. You can find me being less public-facing than Dan on Twitter, at ChasingASMblog. You can go into any bookstore or internet book provider and uh, blow off the uh, dust balls from my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. I actually sold three copies of my book at work the other day, Dan. So there are still people every once in a while who want it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope more of our listeners join onto that group. Awesome. Awesome. But, but thank you. So yeah, those, those are the prime places to find me in the meantime. Mark, you may not be as public facing as I am, but one thing I know is that your heart is always in the right place because you care are the carrier of our motto. And what motto is that? Of course, Dan, that motto is, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next in-